Last week we had our missions conference, and as part of that we heard from a couple of our missionaries about God, what God is doing through them and their part of the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but that has a biblical precedent. And interestingly, that biblical precedent is found in the passage that we've come to this morning in our study through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14 describes the first missions conference in the history of the church. As Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch and tell about all that God has done on this missionary journey. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? As they came back and told all of their stories? Well, really we can be because Luke records the things that happened for us. And as we go through Acts chapter 14 this morning and see the final stages of that first missionary journey, I want us to pick out the characteristics of an effective missionary. Or to broaden that, the characteristics of an effective servant of Christ, which we're all called to be. There are six characteristics that I see here in Paul and Barnabas. Boldness, wisdom, humility, perseverance, love, and dependence. First of all, boldness in verses 1 to 3. And it came about that in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed both of Jews and of Greeks. Paul and Barnabas have just been driven out of Pisidian Antioch for preaching the gospel. They travel 80 miles to Iconium, and what's the first thing they do? They go into the synagogue and they preach the gospel. And with that platform, Luke tells us about the response. He tells us that it was significant, a great multitude believed, and he tells us that it was diverse, both Jews and Gentiles. But you know, as Paul and Barnabas are quickly learning, where the gospel is fruitful, the enemy is active. Verse 2, But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. The gospel doesn't leave anybody neutral. People either believe or they disbelieve. The gospel always gets a reaction, and it did here. These Jews who disbelieved stirred up the Gentiles and embittered them. Literally, this verse reads, they poisoned their souls. They introduced lies. They discredited Paul and Barnabas. They discredited the, the message, and they caused the Gentiles to turn against them. In fact, if you'll notice here, it doesn't just say that they turned against Paul and Barnabas. It says they turned against the brethren. These new believers were catching the opposition as well. Now, what do you do when you face opposition like this? What do you do when your family members and friends start calling you a fanatic? What do you do when the people at work start to whisper behind your back because you're a believer? What do you do when the antagonism starts to arise because you take a stand for Christ? Well, look at verse 3. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. What did Paul and Barnabas do when they saw the opposition? I like this. They spent a long time there. They set up camp there when they saw the opposition. Why? Well, because they knew that opposition only arises when you're making progress. 
If you're being a couch potato for God, the enemy is probably not going to bother you. If you are accomplishing things for the kingdom of God, there will be resistance. And when Paul and Barnabas ran into the resistance, they stayed there because they knew they were on the front lines. Paul said a similar thing while he was in Ephesus. He wrote 1 Corinthians 16, 8, and there he says, But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul says, I'd like to leave, but I can't right now because I've got lots of enemies. And I know when there's lots of enemies, I'm on the front line. Whenever there's a wide door for effective service, there will also be many adversaries. Paul and Barnabas ran into those adversaries in Iconium, and it says they stayed there for a long time. And what were they doing? Well, it says they were speaking boldly. Boldness is an essential part of effective witnessing. When Paul was first saved in Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and verse 27, it says he spoke out boldly in the name of the Lord. In Pisidian Antioch in Acts 13, 46, it says Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Here in Iconium, it says they were speaking boldly. In Acts chapter 19, we're told that Paul was in Ephesus speaking out boldly. Now, why is boldness so essential? Well, because you're on a battlefield. When you speak forth for the Lord, you are speaking into the rifle sights of the enemy. And that requires boldness. In 1 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul says to the Thessalonians, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. What's the opposite of boldness? Timidness, fearfulness, cowardliness. That's what comes natural to us when opposition arises, right? We want to just sort of slip into the woodwork and hide from everybody on those occasions. What is it that made Paul and Barnabas so bold? In, in the midst of opposition, how is it that they spoke out boldly for the Lord? Well, the answer is in verse 3. It says they were speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. Did you get that? Boldness doesn't come because I think that I'm capable. Boldness comes because I know that God is capable. In fact, let me share something with you. The amount of boldness that I have is actually a measure of how much I'm relying on God. When I'm relying on God, I'm bold. When I'm relying on me, I'm fearful. And oftentimes I, I hear Christians say, well, I just couldn't witness to that person. I couldn't, couldn't share my faith like so-and-so does. And when we say that, we sometimes think we're being humble. But that's not humility. That's a lack of faith. When we are relying on the Lord and His power, we can speak boldly. You say, well, Paul spoke boldly because that's just the way he... He did everything. I think he ate cereal boldly, you know. 
I mean, that was just his personality. He was a bold person. Well, that's really not the case. And the evidence of that is that whenever Paul gave a prayer request, you know what he wanted people to pray about? Listen to Ephesians 6.19. Paul says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. What was Paul's prayer request? He wanted boldness. In Philippians 1.20, Paul says, Pray for me that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Boldness doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from my personality. Boldness comes from the Lord. Boldness doesn't come from self-reliance. It comes from God-reliance. And when Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly for the Lord, I want you to notice what happened at the end of verse 3. Speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. When they relied on God, and when they stepped out in faith and spoke boldly for the Lord, God bore witness to His word by signs and wonders. The first time any significant persecution actually came upon the church in Acts chapter 4, the church prayed in that passage, and here's, here was their prayer request. Verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Their prayer request was, God, give us the boldness to speak. And when we step forward and speak, I want you to extend your hand to accomplish things. That's exactly what happens here. They step forward in boldness, and what happens? God reaches down and accomplishes things through their lives. And I want you to notice something in verse 3. God bore witness, notice, to the word of His grace. They were used to hearing the word of His law. Now God bears witness to the word of His grace. And the characteristic in these early missionaries that made that possible was boldness. Second characteristic was wisdom in verses 4 to 7. But the multitude of the city was divided, and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. The preaching of the gospel not only divided the synagogue, it divided the city. People were either for it or against it. There was no middle ground. And that's the way it always is with the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me. And so the line was clearly drawn in Iconium. Some sided with the Jews who poisoned their minds. Some sided with the apostles who communicated the word of grace. Now I want to add a footnote here. Because Luke refers here to Paul and Barnabas as apostles. Now, in what sense was Barnabas an apostle? He obviously wasn't an apostle like Paul was or like the twelve were. The word apostle means one who is sent out, one who is a messenger. And that word is used a couple different ways in the New Testament. It's used of apostles of the Lord, like the twelve apostles. It's also used of apostles of local churches, 
that are sent out. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8.23, Paul refers to Titus and others as apostles of the churches. In Philippians 2.25, Epaphroditus is referred to as an apostle of the church at Philippi. And so here in verse 4 and later in verse 14, Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles because they have been sent out by the church at Antioch. Verse 5, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding region, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now the word attempt here is a little misleading. In its verb form, it's used in Acts 19.29 where it's translated rushed upon. And there it describes a violent mob that rushed upon Paul's traveling companions. And so here he's, he's describing for us this same kind of mob violence. The opposition had come to the point now where they were ready to come upon these two missionaries and mistreat them and stone them. Now, stoning was the Jewish form of execution, which indicates to us here that the instigators behind this plot were the Jews. But what happens in this verse is that the opposition now turns to persecution. And when that happens, what did Paul and Barnabas do? They fled. Now, this is not an act of cowardice. This is an act of prudence. They were bold but they weren't foolish. Jesus gave this same directive to his disciples in Matthew 10, 23. He said, whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. And just as the persecution in Acts chapter 8, this persecution pushed them to further regions to share the gospel. But what I want, to see, want you to see here in terms of their characteristic is wisdom. They knew when to stay, and they knew when to flee. Third characteristic is humility in verses 8 to 18. And at Lystra there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. Now Lystra was about 18 miles from Iconium. It was a Gentile city. It apparently did not have a Jewish synagogue because there's no mention of it. We assume that Paul and Barnabas preached in the streets in the marketplace. And there in the streets of this city was a certain man. And the threefold description of this man emphasizes how hopeless his condition was. It says he was without strength in his feet, he was lame from his mother's womb, and he had never walked. He was congenitally crippled. And everybody in the city knew it. Verse 9. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Among the dozens of people in the crowd, Paul focused on this man. And it says that he could see that this man had faith to be well. Now, I'm not sure if that was something that would have been obvious to anybody or whether that was part of Paul's apostolic gift to recognize the faith in this man. However, he goes up to him and he says to this lame man, stand up on your feet. And if you'll notice, our text says he shouted it. So if Paul didn't have people's attention, he does now. He's shouting at a lame man to stand up. And what happens? 
the man leaps up and begins to walk. You say, well, I bet everybody in the city believed. Well, not exactly. Look at verse 11. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. Now, Lystra is a Greek city. They practiced pantheism. They worshipped all kinds of gods. And when they see this miracle take place, their conclusion is Paul and Barnabas are gods. Verse 12. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, to give you a little background on this, the Roman poet Ovid, who died in 17 AD, wrote that there was a tradition in the city of Lystra that the gods Zeus and Hermes had once come to earth incognito. And they arrived at the city of Lystra and asked for food and lodging, and everybody refused. Finally, an old peasant named Philemon and his wife Baucus took them in, and the vengeful gods sent a flood that drowned all of their inhospitable neighbors. And Philemon and Bacchus saw their humble cottage turned into a magnificent temple where they served as priest and priestess until their death, at which time they were each turned into huge trees. That helps us a little bit understand what happened here about 40 years later. These residents of this city didn't want to make the, ma the same mistake that they believed that their ancestors had made. And so they see this miracle and their conclusion is that Barnabas was Zeus or Jupiter. Zeus was the head honcho god. And so that tells us that Barnabas was probably maybe more distinguished looking than Paul. And so they thought he was Zeus. And they called Paul Hermes or Mercury because he was the communicator of the gods. He was the one that did most of the speaking. And verse 13 tells us, And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. The priest of Zeus comes in, he brings his oxen, he's going to sacrifice them to Paul and Barnabas. This is quite a picture. What's going on here? Well, this is really an attack from the enemy. Because, you see, if Satan can't get us from without, he'll get us from within. If he, he can't get us through persecution, he'll attack us through pride. And the temptation here, and you can imagine it for Paul and Barnabas, they've gotten persecution everywhere they've gone. Now there are people who want to actually bow down and treat them like royalty, and it would be a temptation to say, whoa, this is wonderful. But what do they do? Verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? Now, if you look back at verse 11, you'll find that these people were calling them gods in the Lyconium language. That was just a language for this area. Paul and Barnabas didn't understand the language. So they're being talked about as gods and they really don't understand what's going on. And when they finally realize what's going on, the first thing we're told that they did was they ran into the crowd and they tore their robes. You remember when Jesus said he was the son of God in Matthew 26, the high priest tore his robes and said he has blasphemed. Tearing your robes was a Jewish expression of horror and revulsion 
usually reserved against, for, for a reaction against blasphemy, which tells us that that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas considered this. To be worshiping them, men, as God was blasphemy against the living God. And so they tore their robes and also they cried out, saying, why are you doing these things? In verse 15, we are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. We're not gods. We're men just like you. And we haven't come here so that you can worship us. We've come here to preach you the gospel so that you can turn away from those vain things, so that you can turn away from worshiping men and little gods and worship the living God. And then Paul and Barnabas are going to tell them about the living God. And what's interesting is his approach here. To the Jews, he always started with the Old Testament scriptures because that's what they knew. But now he's dealing with Gentiles. They don't have the scriptures. And so he deals with what they know, and that is nature. Later in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They had nature to tell them about God. And so that's where Paul and Barnabas begin with these Gentiles. And they tell them three things about God from nature. Number one, he's the creator. Verse 15 at the end, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. They believed in multiple gods. They believed there was a God of the water, a God of the trees, a God of the rocks. He tells them there's one God. One God who created the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. There is one creator, the living God. Secondly, he tells them that this God is patient. Verse 16, and in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. You ever wonder why there's so many problems in the world? Why there's so much suffering in the world? The reason is that man has gone his own way. And in speaking to these Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas tell them that the reason for that is because God has let them go. He's permitted it. He did not judge sin when it first happened. Instead, he was patient. He let it go on. Why? Because he knew that he was going to provide the solution in the giving of his son. And so this God is the creator. This God is being patient with you. And then thirdly, he tells them that he loves you. Verse 17. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he, that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even while you went, away, went astray, God was demonstrating his love for you. How? Doing good for you, sending rain out of heaven, giving you fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. And so Paul and Barnabas say, don't worship us, worship him. We're just the messengers of this great, patient, loving God. Verse 18, and even saying these things, they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. It's all they could do to stop the crowds from worshiping them. And what's the quality? What's the characteristic that we see here? It's humility. And that's an important characteristic in a servant of God because people are inclined often 
to elevate the preacher rather than the Lord, to elevate the servant rather than the master. And it's important as we serve the Lord that we do so in humility so that we direct our attention to him. Fourth characteristic is persistence. Verse 19, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Some of the Jews that drove Paul and Barnabas out of Antioch in Acts 13.50 were still fuming. And so they decided they were going to follow Paul and Barnabas, and they followed them the 80 miles to Iconium. And when they get there, they asked about them, and the people there say, well, they were just here, and we were just about to stone them, and they escaped. And so they form a posse, and they track them down, and they trace them to Lystra. And there it says they won over the multitude, something these Jews were very good at. And they stoned Paul, and thinking that he was dead, they dragged him out of the city. Now, this is a pretty fickle crowd. One minute, Paul is a god to be worshipped. The next minute, he's a criminal to be slain. And some have questioned whether Paul actually died on this occasion and rose from the dead. I think the answer to that is found in verse 19. It says they were supposing him to be dead. He wasn't dead, but he was the next thing to it. They had yet to imagine that they stoned him. They took stones and pummeled his body until he stopped flinching. And when he stopped flinching, they assumed he must be dead. And so they dragged him out of the city and they left him motionless there. And verse 20 tells us that the disciples gathered around him. I like that phrase because it tells us that even amidst this persecution, Paul was fruitful. There were disciples. They were the minority. Their leader had just been stoned. Their future looked bleak, but they were standing by Paul. Who were these disciples? One of them was the lame man that was healed in the city. One of them was probably named Lois, and she had a daughter named Eunice who had a son named Timothy. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 16 and verse 1, we're told that Timothy was from Lystra. And verse 20 says, While the disciples stood around him, he arose and entered the city. Now, I love the simplicity of that statement. He, he just got up and went back into the city. And then verse 20 continues and says, And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. Most people would have taken a little time off to recuperate after being stoned. This says next day he goes to Derby. That's a 40-mile walk. When I play a pickup basketball game, I don't feel like doing anything the next day. Paul gets stoned. Next day he's heading off to serve the Lord. What's that? That's perseverance. And that's the kind of thing that we need to imitate. Fifth characteristic is love in verses 21 to 25. Verse 21 says, And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. When Paul and Barnabas got to Derbe, they preached the gospel, made many disciples. Now, you have to understand that Paul and Barnabas have traveled nearly 700 miles 
since they left Antioch in Syria. And they've traveled in a sort of circle. So at this point in time, they are only about 200 miles from Antioch. It would make sense for them to simply go straight southeast to Antioch. It's the shortest way. It would take them through Paul's hometown of Tarsus, and it would keep them from having to go back through all the danger that they knew was behind them. But instead, what did Paul and Barnabas do? Well, it says they went back to Lystra, where Paul was stoned, and Iconium, where they had barely escaped with their lives, and Pisidian Antioch, where they had been driven out of town. Now, what would make them go back to places like that? Well, we discover the reason in verses 22 and 23. They went back there to nurture the believers. They disregarded their own physical well-being out of concern for the spiritual well-being of these new believers, and that's love. And I want to point out to you four things that they went and did at these cities. Number one, they strengthened them, verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Now, how do you strengthen somebody's soul? Well, the same way you strengthen somebody's body. You give them food. You give them nourishment. And what is the nourishment? What is the food for our soul? It's the Word of God. So Paul and Barnabas went back and taught the disciples the Word of God, strengthening them. And then the second thing they did was they encouraged them. Verse 22 continues, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Not only did they teach them, but they exhorted them. And those two things go hand in hand. Believers have to be taught biblical truths and exhorted to practice them. And what was the exhortation? The exhortation was to continue in the faith. And that was especially timely because these believers were probably experiencing a lot of opposition. And Paul wants to make sure that they're not surprised by that. And so at the end of verse 22, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Underline that phrase. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. He's not saying you have to suffer to get saved. We all get saved the same way. By grace, through faith, it's a gift from God. And the moment we believe we are born again into the kingdom of God, we are in the kingdom of God in its spiritual aspect. But Paul here is talking about the kingdom of God in its future aspect. And he tells us that those of us who are believers can expect to suffer along the way. The pathway to future glory is filled with tribulations. And this message came with an object lesson. Because as Paul was telling them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, he had bruises and whelps and swollen areas on his face and on his body from the stoning he had undergone. Paul was a living illustration of this truth. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In fact, I believe that some of the scars that Paul received in this stoning were permanent. Because he later wrote to these same Galatians in Galatians 6, 17, 
And he said, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And with those scars as a testimony, Paul encouraged them to continue in the faith. And then the third thing he did was he organized them, verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting. Paul and Barnabas knew that their time with these believers would be brief. And so to provide for them in the long term, they appointed elders in every church. And you can note how significant this decision was because it says they prayed with fasting in making it because these men would give spiritual leadership and provide spiritual care for the flock of God. They organized them. And then the fourth thing they did was they directed them. Verse 23 ends with these words, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You know, it had to be hard for Paul and Barnabas to say goodbye to these young Christians because they had to wonder if they were going to be all right. The most mature Christian among this group was probably less than a year old in the Lord. Even their elders were youngers. And so Paul and Barnabas are saying goodbye, and as they say goodbye to these young Christians, leaving them on their own, it says they commended them entrusted them to the Lord. That was a reminder to Paul and Barnabas that if God saved them, God could keep them. But that was also giving direction to these young Christians that the one who could care for them was the Lord. Then verse 24, And they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Now, the first time they came through Perga in Acts 13, 13, we have no mention of any preaching. And we suggested on that occasion that Paul may have been sick. He may have had malaria, and therefore he left Perga and went up to the mountain regions to get better. If that's true, then this gives us another reason why he wanted to come back this way. Not only to minister to the new believers that were already there, but he wanted to come back to Perga, and it says, as it says here, preach the gospel there as well. And what's that? That's love. He had a love for the lost. He had a love for new believers that they might be built up in the Lord. Sixth characteristic is dependence in verses 26 to 28. And from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a long time with the disciples. Here's the first missions conference. And the characteristic that comes through in Paul and Barnabas is dependence. First of all, dependence upon the church. They had been gone for at least a year. And now they return and they report all the things that have happened. Why are they reporting to these people? Well, because this is the church that sent them out. This is the church that commended them to the Lord. This is the church that has been praying for them. The people in this church were co-laborers with Paul and Barnabas. They were dependent on this church. And so they came back and excitedly told them about how the work had been accomplished. But secondly, they were dependent upon the Lord. What is it that they reported? Verse 27. 
they reported all things that God had done with them and how he, God, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. I like that. They didn't use this opportunity to brag about how much they had done. They used this opportunity to brag about how much God had done through them. They were dependent. Do you want to be effective as a missionary? Do you want to be effective as a servant of Christ? Do you want to be effective as a witness for the Lord? Then let's imitate the characteristics we find in Paul and Barnabas. Boldness to speak for the Lord even in the face of opposition. Wisdom to know when to stay and to know when to flee. Humility to turn the attention away from ourselves to the Lord. Persistence to get up even in the face of persecution and go on. Love to pour our lives into others no matter what the cost. And dependence upon our brothers and sisters in Christ and upon the Lord who works his work through us. We're going to close in prayer. And as we do, I'm going to ask Patrick and Heather to come forward. Heather uh, Boyer was baptized this morning, and Patrick Bracey is coming along with her to join this fellowship of believers. And so as we close in prayer this morning, I'm going to ask that they be up at the front to give you an opportunity to meet them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this passage that shows us the activities of Paul and Barnabas as they served you. And Father, we have so many characteristics here that we want to imitate. And Father, I pray as we look at these today, as we seek to apply them to our lives, that you would use each one of us to be effective as your servants in the opportunities that you've put before us this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.